0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren, a producer on the show. Darts and Letters is a podcast about the politics of ideas. This summer, we're celebrating joining the New Books Network by bringing you some of our favorite past episodes of the show. Each week, we've been following a different theme. Remember, we're launching brand new episodes of Darts and Letters right here on the network later this month. Stay tuned. This week, we're looking at right-wing politics from a left point of view. Today's episode, originally released in June of this year, shows us the devastating impacts of appropriating scientific research. On May 14th of 2022, a shooter opened fire in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Ten people were killed, an additional three injured. The suspect in the Buffalo shooting had a manifesto, as mass shooters often do. However, this one was different. It was littered with references to peer-reviewed scientific research that supposedly supported his white supremacist beliefs. This is part of a broader far-right subculture in which research is read closely and appropriated. On this episode of Darts and Letters, our producer Mark Apollonio takes us on an exploration of the intellectual history of race science and right-wing thought. Over to you, Mark.
0: Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters, I'm Mark Apollonio. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate with new people more obedient voters from the third world but they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening actually let's just say it that's mm. true just a few weeks ago it was pretty sexy for tucker carlson to talk about the great replacement theory the new york times has documented 400 instances of the fox news host the most watched personality on cable news television invoking or explicitly naming the great replacement theory on his show suddenly though It's a bad look, and Carlson's trying to put some daylight between himself and the idea. That's because, as you've likely heard, stopping the Great Replacement was the main stated motivation of the 18-year-old white supremacist terrorist who targeted black people in an attack on May 14th in Buffalo, shooting 13 people and killing 10. The shooting 10 days later in Uvalde, Texas, in which an 18-year-old killed 21 people at an elementary school, investigators say that shooter had no clear ideology. Reports describe a young man bullied throughout childhood who'd been growing more troubled and violent with time. But the case in Buffalo, it's different. Whatever the state of his mind, the explicit beliefs of the alleged shooter, the motivation he seized upon when he went to that supermarket, are abundantly clear. In a 180-page tract he released before the attack, he details his white supremacist beliefs, his desire to act before whites are replaced by people of color, and his hope that his act is an inspiration to others. This kind of shooter screed is, sadly, nothing new, nor are the white supremacist beliefs they contain. What's different this time around is the way the shooter attempted, in his writing, to document how specifically his beliefs are supported by science. Jed Carlson, a population geneticist who tracks the far right, and one of our guests this episode, tweeted after the incident that this screed is unique because, quote, it's the first I'm aware of that's included links to the primary scientific literature. Today on Darts and Letters, we delve into the twisted race science of white supremacists, how they commandeer science to boost their ideology and give themselves a veneer of legitimacy, and whether there's anything legit scientists can be doing about it.
2: You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas,
3: and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network.
2: And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September, And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca.
0: Later this episode, we'll hear from a Canadian journalist who writes about the influence of race science in mainstream Canadian politics. And in a moment, we'll hear from that geneticist, Jed Carlson, who uses bibliometrics, a kind of quantitative way to measure the impact of academic publications, to explore how deep the far right's interest goes in contemporary genetics research? But even before I do that, I want to do this thing. It feels like it could come off as a bit of woke piety, but that's not the goal. It's at this episode, it stems from the horrors of the Buffalo shooting, and the victims don't feature in these interviews. And that does feel weird. So I want to acknowledge that absence acknowledge them, 13 people were shot, 11 of them black, 10 of them died. There's another thing I want to say before we go on, and that's the fact that there is no biological truth to the idea that there are different races within the human species. There are genes, about six, associated with the simple trait of skin color, just as there are genes that help determine your height or your ability to digest starchy food. But from the perspective of genetics, once you've ascertained someone's skin color, that's all you've ascertained. Nothing more meaningful can be deduced about a person than that. So race, the idea that there are significant biological differences between groups of people corresponding with skin color, is simply false. Jed Carlson is a population geneticist based in Minneapolis. Following the Buffalo shooting, he scoured the alleged attacker's screed, analyzing the way the alleged attacker attempted to use genetic science to bolster his ideology.
3: So the kind of overarching topic of the shooter's document is this idea of the Great Replacement. This is a far-right theory that originated in France, actually. The idea is there's the, quote, global elites are systematically attempting to bring in immigrants from other countries and replace the white race in uh, Western countries. And so this is a topic that has popped up in the writings of various other spree shooters over the last five, 10 years. What's unique about this particular shooter's document is that he actually cites a lot of scientific research directly. Um, It was sort of invoked in writings of other shooters, such as Dylan Roof in in Charleston, Brennan Tarrant in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, so it was really, uh, I think, jarring to see the kind of a scientific justification for this atrocity kind of laid bare in, in this document.
0: How would you generally qualify the way this person interpreted and used genetic research throughout this document?
3: First of all, it's a pretty rudimentary reading of the research. It's very clear that the shooter was not you know, deeply engaged with the research and trying to understand it for the sake of pursuing knowledge. It's very clear that the research was sort of used as informational ammunition to radicalize folks like himself and, and others of this community.
0: You've spent several years now investigating how genetics research gets appropriated into these white supremacy ideologies, and you've uncovered all kinds of weird phenomena. I mean, I'm, I'm not too sure if you're, you're, the, you're the person who first sort of labeled these things, but you've certainly been exploring things like journal clubs where these far-right people gather in in various chat groups to explore various scientific papers.
3: Yeah, I, I call them journal clubs uh, just because they they really do have the same structure as you know a journal club that you would have in a, an academic department where you know, someone finds a, a paper that they think is interesting and they may be well-versed in the jargon of genetics and know what they're talking about. Or they might just have seen something in the news and they bring it to this community and say, hey, can you help me interpret this? Yeah, it really follows this kind of conversational discussion of you know, walking through a paper talking about the methods used, what are the conclusions, but all, of course, through this you know extremely racist lens.
0: So it's a group of racist white people, I'm guessing a lot of them are men, getting together, posting URLs to research papers, and then doing their best to dissect them and explore how it Provides fodder for their for their ideology.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's not always direct links to scientific research. Um, I, I would say that's probably grown in popularity in in recent years, just as the scientific community has been more proactive about making their research open access and putting stuff on on publicly available preprint servers. But a lot of times you have you have these communities uh, you know, catching wind of an article in the news media and you know, sometimes the, the article is paywalled and they're, they're just doing this sort of tertiary discussion of the research without actually having access to it.
0: How scientifically literate are, I mean, the, the breakdown that you're just talking about, if they're not reading the science, how much can they actually know about the, the details of the study? But even if they could, or in the occasions where they do have access to the whole study, I mean, how much scientific literacy do they seem to have when it comes to the kinds of studies they're, they're delving into?
3: I would say there's a, a wide range. Uh, you can actually go back to some of uh, Richard Spencer's old websites um, where he's kind of laying out the ideology of the, the alt-right, which was you know, the, the buzzword of 2016. And in that, he you know describes scientific evidence for this far-right ideology as kind of a, a central tenet of what they believe. So there's kind of this background that these neo-fascist movements are very willing to incorporate genetics research into their ideology and and to apply and manipulate and and appropriate it as needed. But there's definitely individuals who are have some degree of scientific training. You know, some certainly have graduate training in in biology and genetics. Some are more autodidactic in, in the sense that they've learned as much as they can on on their own time. And so I think there's an intellectual vanguard of this community that's really responsible for scouring through the literature, trying to make sense of it, and summarizing and communicating that for the rest of the community.
0: When you, with, with your background in population genetics, look at the kind of analysis they're making, is it laughably incoherent? I mean, you said some of them have a certain amount of, of literacy. Would a scientist like you look at this and just you know roll your eyes at how amateurish their analysis is? Or are there times where they're doing an efficient job of cherry-picking the things in a sophisticated enough way to make their argument look like it is supported by the science?
3: A little of both. And I think I would say it's always dangerous to laugh off an interpretation as, you know, juvenile. Um, not because it isn't, but you know, simply because I think the way in which they're interpreting the science is far less of an issue than the outcomes of, of how they're interpreting that re the, the buffalo shooter. And so I think really taking seriously the, the way in which they are cherry-picking things and the rhetoric they're using and comparing and contrasting that with scientific vernacular, uh, I think is, is a really useful exercise uh, in, in understanding how our writing might be taken out of context and readily adapted to these movements.
0: The science of heredity and genetics has been intertwined with eugenics and racism for, I mean, centuries. How would you qualify? Like, are we in a new phase of the racist appropriation of science? Is it just more of the same? How would you qualify the stage of things right now?
3: Yeah, I would say it's certainly evolved and changed with where we are at technologically as a society. You know, social media is the the dominant form of communication between scientists and, you know, everyone else in the world. And I don't think we've, we've really uh, grappled with some of the the negative impacts of that. You know, every, every grad student who starts in a lab is told, you know, get a Twitter account and communicate with your peers on science and get connected and get a job. And, um, you know, all these wonderful things that social media can do for scientists. And I mean, I've, I've certainly benefited from that, but, you know, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how we're engaging On social media and how that's picked up by bad
0: actors. Is there something that scientists publishing should be doing to try and mediate whether bad actors can use their work? Can that be done? Can that sort of exchange be prevented? What should they be doing?
3: It's a really tricky question because I think the inclination is to, you know, feel like we we can and and should fix the problem. I I mean, I think, you know, in, in light of every tragedy, every Everyone is is uh yeah, willing to, you know, reflect on on what needs to change to prevent the next one. On the other hand, I think simply changing the way we're writing a paper, being more nuanced, being more specific and, and precise in our language, that's a pointless solution to you know addressing the appropriative communities that are are taking up that work. There's certainly things that scientists can do to repudiate the the appropriation of their work. Um, this happens a lot with um, you look at the fallout of, of Nicholas Wade's book, uh, Troublesome Inheritance and in 2014, over hundred leading geneticists signed this open letter, basically rejecting the conclusions that Wade had made based on their work. And you know, you see similar statements pop up after pretty much all all of the big flashpoints on the the societal impacts of genetics research, particularly as it pertains to race. But I think stopping at the repudiation step is, it doesn't amount to anything more than reputational damage control.
0: The Buffalo shooting is kind of a a tragic case study for scientists, at least trying to repudiate misinterpretation of their work, which um, would never be the be all end all in terms of an answer. But I still want to just explore this thing that happened with this shooter's screed, because a few weeks ago, I interviewed Paige Harden about her book, The Genetic Lottery, and then Uh, I spoke to an adamant critic of her book, the geneticist uh, Joseph Graves, Jr. And we spoke a lot about the EA3 study, Educational Attainment 3 study, which was so foundational to Hardin's research. And that's a study that was overseen by the Social Science Genetic Association Consortium, the SSGAC, who came out horrified that their work was used, was associated with this act of terrorism. And they came out saying, this guy has wildly misinterpreted what we wrote. I mean, it's just a gross misinterpretation. There's there's no subtlety that he has not understood anything about this piece. He's just bending it to, to what he did. But something I found interesting was that this same organization, prior to the shooting, had issued a, an FAQ where they're trying to get ahead of misinterpretation of their science, realizing, I guess, that this kind of stuff is lurking out there. People are trying to pull apart genetic science for nefarious purposes. They're proposing that they're going to come up with the terms of use which will require researchers who are going to draw upon their research to have read and understand the principles articulated by the American Society of Human Genetics, their position statement, which denounces attempts to link genetics to racial supremacy, and then goes into more technical explanations so that the SSGAC wants people who use their research to basically understand how the science works and how it, that precludes it being used to say anything about race. Do you think this kind of um, policy is is going to be in any way useful to the end of trying to prevent people from misinterpreting or commandeering genetic science?
3: I would say it's useful, but maybe not to that end. The FAQ and the, the terms of service and the stuff they put out front, their target audience for that is not radicalized or radicalizing individuals. Their target audience for that was other scientists and maybe members of the public who are curious about Kind of how the, the authors saw the social implications of their work, but the Buffalo shooter didn't read the FAQ for EA3 or uh, any of the other work that he cited that may have you know, had some sort of public statement about the, the implications of the work. It's really beside the point of whether or not it's, it's doing anything to prevent or mitigate or inoculate against this happening again.
0: You mentioned before when when we first started talking about how and whether scientists should try and take an active role in how they're their work gets used. You raise the question of whether they should. Is there an argument as to why they shouldn't?
3: Scientists are, are pretty universally on board and acknowledging that this was a, a bad thing that happened. And it makes us feel bad to see our work cited in this way. And on Twitter, at least, there's been several suggestions that you know we should, at the very least, like use this as an opportunity for self-reflection and think about how how we can you know, avoid the next paper being, you know, taken up in, uh, in the next tragedy. Personally, and and perhaps pessimistically, in anything we do is somewhat irrelevant because there's already this huge body of literature that's already being uh, appropriated and and applied in the in this way. You know, the next white nationalist to commit a mass shooting, he doesn't need EA five, he doesn't need EA six, he has EA three, EA four, and. The literature that's come before that. Yeah, all that to say the the suggestions to self-reflect and and think about this as an ethical issue that IRBs should consider when uh, and so that's institutional review boards I'm kind of responsible for, for overseeing the you know ethics of, of any research that's conducted at institutions. You know, the idea is, you know, maybe they they or funding agencies or publishers can play a more active role in you know shaping the research that is conducted and published and uh Communicated in the media and try to you know maybe reduce overhyping the stuff in in ways that gets so easily distorted, and that's met with a, a lot of uh, resistance. Actually, of you know folks insinuating that this amounts to censorship and suppression of research and suppression of the truth. Yeah, they they sort of construct the slippery slope that as soon as you start doing that, you're just going to make it you know all the more attractive to you know racists to you know see this as a a gap in our research that we've kind of deliberately blocked out. Uh, And I think that's nonsense. Like, first of all, nobody is seriously recommending censorship in in any form. We all abide by the system of IRB and ethics and peer review and the systems in place to hold research in check and ensure that it's done to the the benefit of society. Those are all bog standard uh,
0: aspects of, of being a scientist. Have you had any other scientists come to you and say, you've helped show me that my stuff is being posted on this weird website somewhere? what can I do about it? Or, or, or what other information can I glean to figure out what I can do or try to understand how I can improve things?
3: Yeah, this has come up several times in the, the last several years since I've uh, started doing this. Um, you know, again, in, in population genetics, I uh, I don't want to point the finger too exclusively at, at behavioral genetics, just because EA3 was the, the kind of big one that everyone latched on to in the Buffalo Shooters document. But in population genetics, um, you see this sort of Backfire happen all the time, where scientists will publish, publish their findings, and um, it's it's very well intentioned. It might be about, say, you know, the uh, existence of you know, Neanderthal DNA in in the genome. You know, it's cool science. It's cool for understanding human history. Like that's that's what science is all about is just pursuing your own curiosity. But you know, these folks were completely blindsided by how their work got picked up and and warped into this twisted ideology. So I, I published a paper. A couple of years ago, that actually systematically looks at how scientific studies are discussed on Twitter. Um, so it basically takes the list of everyone who's tweeted about a paper and then tries to understand and parse out characteristics of that audience. What I found was was pretty shocking. In in some cases, you know, more than half of the Twitter audience was kind of embedded in these far right social networks on on Twitter. More broadly, we found. More than 10% of papers had kind of a, a detectable audience sector uh, embedded in those far-right communities. So it, it really is a, a much broader issue than behavioral genetics. Certainly research on cognitive and behavioral traits is the honeypot that attracts those communities the most. But you see this in studies of animal behavior. You see this uh, throughout neuroscience. You see it in just really kind of across biology. And I mean, even in, even some things in like astronomy are really interesting to white nationalists. Um, there's a several stormfront threads that are actually, you know, very enthusiastic about, you know, colonizing Mars as a, a white ethno state. It's easy to, to laugh off, but I, I think it really speaks to the fact that science as a whole is you know, susceptible to getting latched onto by
0: these communities. I guess an, an infuriating thing as a scientist must be like, I was reading somewhere about these uh, white nationalists who on to YouTube and chug milk to show that they have the whatever mutation on the I think the6 MCM6 gene that confers lactose tolerance. Uh, so they're trying to display how, how European they are. And I guess there's a million ways you could undermine what they say, but one of the most obvious and, and kind of hilarious ones that there are is that there are people in in East Africa who raised dairy cows who also have the same gene. so it, it completely undermines their point. But, I guess once again, if you try and fight them with reason, you're not going to get anywhere because reason doesn't matter to them. I mean, it's just they're just taking whatever they can to foster their own their own excitement,
3: yeah, you know, particularly being a scientist where you you're trained to try and think through everything under this this very logical frame of mind. Uh, the the irrationality of our world today is frustrating in general, but um particularly on this topic where all of the nuance and Editing that we we pour into our papers for the sake of our peers, you know, we we want to be really clear to each other in in our findings, so we can you know progress science forward. All of that gets lost on much of the general public. Um, not even in the, the appropriate manner of, of white nationalists. You, there's obviously huge issues with uh, science getting overhyped by the news media and you know really, uh, in my opinion, setting us back in, in terms of the scientific progress that can be made.
0: Jed Carlson. The reality is that race science is not limited to the distant margins. Many mainstream figures are ready to show their support. There's the famous case of the podcaster Sam Harris, who says he gets 1 million downloads per episode. Sam Harris invited Charles Murray, the infamous author of The Bell Curve, onto his podcast, defending him, lamenting that Murray has unfairly suffered from his reputation as a racist, despite Murray being one of the most prominent pushers of race science today. And of course, There's mainstream buy-in to the ideas of people like Murray here in Canada as well. Mitch Thompson is a reporter with Press Progress. In a recent piece for Jacobin Magazine, he wrote about race science in Canada. I spoke to Mitch and started asking him about the sad legacy of the now deceased, discredited, and disgraced University of Western Ontario psychologist, John Philip Rushton.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to underline that his research was thought of as a joke at the time. He has recently been retracted. So actually, if you go to the University of Western Ontario website and you try to find one of his articles, it takes you to a page saying we have disavowed John philippe Rushton and all of his work. But yes, uh, he was at the University of Western Ontario. He studied at Oxford, uh, did a brief stint at York University and, and briefly at U of T, but I think received tenure around 1985 at the University of Western Ontario. And best known study, his most infamous study. The study cited in the Memphis study, the shooter was on what's called the black-white IQ gap. And, uh, you know, there is a uh, supposedly a a lower national average IQ um, between uh, America and South Africa. And this study You cannot find it online. It is obviously a ridiculous data method. IQ is not considered. The methodology is pretty widely discredited, but this was the sort of thing he would focus on. Rustin's work himself, his best-known book was known as uh, Race, Evolution, and Behavior. And he looked at the differences in what's called R and and K species in terms of how they reproduce. So one has a, a smaller... group of offspring the level of what's called parental investment tends to be higher in some animals so if you think about an elephant they have you know a a very small litter most of them tend to survive (laughs) for a longer period versus for instance a hamster he with absolutely no scientific basis then said that you could track that difference in uh, different human races
0: just to summarize the rk selection hypothesis just being that some animals have a very small number of babies and invest lots and lots of time into those babies And they tend to be longer lived and I think have higher brain mass and stuff like that. And then other animals like mice and hamsters or many other kinds of creatures have giant litters and they don't spend much time raising them. And many of them die. But since there are so many, the population continues to move on. And he applied this to people, right?
2: Yeah. And in particular, uh, divided into races, which he identified using uh, the phrases. He identified using the categories mongoloids, caucasoids, and negroids. So according to him, this is not my word, this is his word, well, orientals are slower to mature, less fertile, and less sexually active, but they have larger brains and higher IQ scores. He continued, blacks are at the opposite end in these areas, whites fall in the middle, often close to orientals. Um, and uh, that you can track these differences between the races. It should be said that there is no biological basis to race. There is no genetic basis to race. This is scientifically nonsense, but it is it has been influential uh, nonsense. Now, this became a, a, a subject of some contention uh, at the University of Western Ontario. He surveyed a series of first-year psychology students asking them about their penis length, how far they ejaculated, and the number of sexual partners they had. And then later did another study at the Eaton Center in Toronto, where he paid, uh, I think it was 50 men of of three different races as he kind of identified them, to ask them questions about their sexual habits, but didn't inform them. Uh, And uh, he ended up being uh, censured by the university for this. And he was no longer allowed to use students as, uh, as, as subjects in his studies. He was still allowed to have tenure and still <laughs> able to do the research, but the university <laughs> did condemn that particular study for AA, what they described as a serious breach of scholarly procedure.
0: So in his literature, he established what he believed to be a, uh, a hierarchy of the races, the so-called races, and that, that is kind of his, in a nutshell, his contribution. And he was connected quite tightly to the Pioneer Fund. Yes. Tell me a bit about just what the Pioneer Fund, what this outfit is, was established in the 30s and and, and what it's up to today.
2: Yeah. So it was founded by a guy called uh, Wycliffe Draper. It was the scion of the Draper Corporation who owned uh, textile plants, as I understand it. And he uh, had the help of a guy called Henry Garrett. who he was one of the founders of the International Association for the Advancement of Eugenics and Ethnology. And this was, yeah, 1937. And it was identified even as Russia himself concedes as a, a, a pro-Nazi think tank, although they uh, disputed that at the time. And it was, yeah, explicitly uh, a white supremacist think tank. And through the 50s, defended segregation, had a number of advocates of the apartheid regime in South Africa and uh, what was then uh, Rhodesia, now, now Zimbabwe. And it should be said it had a lot of former Nazis around it, they launched a journal in 1950 that, that Russian was closely associated with called Mankind Quarterly. When they launched it, uh, an early editorial member was actually a mentor to Joseph Mengele, who was the doctor at Auschwitz and, and knew him before and, and during the Holocaust. And if you look at the early pioneer fund, um, whether it's the associates of Arthur Jensen, who was also an influential figure at that time, Versher, who was the mentor of of Mengele, you, you find actually quite a lot of former Nazis in, in, in these areas too.
0: So the Pioneer Fund, its relevance today is that it's still funding the kind of science that we're going to be talking about. And I've always just wondered at the fact that as, as you looked at the history of so-called race science, it's always pretty astonishing to how how close to the mainstream it seems to always be. In recent decades, Charles Murray, I think, is, is probably the best known example. You look at the people who cite him or or fraternize with him. The inevitable example is his appearance on the Sam Harris podcast a few years ago. And it's, you know, it's pretty astonishing that this this whack job is taken seriously and, and, and given credence and airtime by all kinds of people. He seems to have been able to give himself this sheen of legitimacy, despite having worked on projects associated with the Pioneer Fund and Mankind Quarterly, the journal you mentioned. So I guess I'm just wondering, what do you think are the mechanics at play that seem to be keeping this whole project of race science and figures like Charles Murray from sliding kind of into the the deep, distant margins where nobody takes any note?
2: So he himself, uh, as far as I know, never got funding from the Pioneer Fund. But it is significant that an awful lot of the research he cited was Pioneer funded research. And this was pointed out by the New York Review of books at the time. He wrote two key books which are cited by the right in Canada and the United States. The former is called Losing Ground, and the latter is, of course, The Bell Curve, which he co authored with Richard Herrnstein in, in 1994. Losing Ground was published in the 1980s, and it is the one cited by Canadian mainstream conservatives. Um, you can find it in Fraser Institute reports promoting welfare cuts uh, in Ontario. and. You can find it in Atlantic Institute for Market Studies. Jason Kenney, the former disgraced premier of Alberta, said it was one of his favorite books when he was at a Manhattan Institute conference uh, about two years ago. It's highly influential. And if you read it, it is just as hateful as, as any of this stuff. It has a chapter called Being Poor, Being Black where it argues that the welfare state had created basically multiple generations of welfare dependent black kids who were overtaking American cities who have no respect for law and order and are basically uh, always looking to carry out uh, acts of violence, uh, their so-called disrespect for white laws. And if you look at the citation, and this is actually a very a point in the index of the original printing, which you can find online, please don't pay for the book. It cites Arthur Jensen, who was one of the first pioneer-funded researchers and uh, was an avid defender of eugenics to stop the polluting of the gene pool by lower-intelligent Black people.
0: At Darts and Letters, we need your support. If you like the show, consider chipping in. Darts goes past the headlines, the culture wars, and pointless squabbles, and looks at the policies, the histories, and most of all, the ideas that matter. Support us at Patreon.com/slash Darts and Letters. All right, back to my interview with Mitch Thompson. This might be obvious, but walk us through the policy vision that he that, that emanated from from these ideas. Like, what was he telling politicians to do? And, and 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 then and then maybe tell me how that those ideas have been taken up by people like Kenny.
2: Yeah. So Jensen, in a lot of ways, was the most influential uh, and, and the first kind of modern race scientist. He was an avid defender of segregation and. in in the United States, testified for Congress in in favor of it, and did a a study in 1969 called How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement, which basically argued that integration in the schools would not work, and that kids who were poor were uh, of an inferior stock and would do less well in school and that the welfare state and anti-poverty initiatives in allowing mothers to have kids was, you know, going to breed out a race of violent inferiors and, and call for the policy to be discontinued. And he did a bunch of mental tests to show it, which were pretty widely discredited at the time. He received millions of dollars in pioneer money from the Pioneer Fund and was really the, the advent of, of this section of research. And yeah, he then influenced Charles Murray. And what you often find is it's amazing that all these people know each other. It's actually later in the bell curve that Murray uh, cites Rushton uh, and his theory for why the welfare state was creating a new layer of, of welfare-dependent inferiors. And he used uh, Russian citations on three different races, and their different um, average IQ scores to demonstrate it. And really, the common policy for all of them is is austerity. It is that the school system should give up on uh, you know the the egalitarian pedagogical project of you know giving people a better life, and you know should basically become a disciplinary force. And and that anti-poverty programs are are worth disbanding. And in particular, there's one idea Murray raises in the bell curve that he said he doesn't entirely indulge in, but it's that of the custodial state, that effectively the state should become a force for effectively policing the gene pool. It should become a purely repressive force to ensure that the uh, the superiors are not harmed by the inferiors. It's really quite a. Disturbing book that, and it is quite shocking that it's as main, it's as popular in the mainstream as it is on the right.
0: You describe in the in the Jacobin piece this fellow Walter Bloch, who was at the head of the Fraser Institute. He was the head economist at the Fraser Institute, and that he cited J.P. Rushton and, and Charles Murray. You quote him as saying that the right to discriminate is a desirable feature of free societies. And then you go on to talk about how the Fraser Institute effectively helped. British Columbia become sort of a, a case study of testing out certain kinds of austerity-oriented legislation. Can you tell me a bit about that case study?
2: Yes, so yeah, Walter Bloch was one of the first economists with the Fraser Institute. He's now with the Von Mises Institute. Interestingly, he's also mentioned in the Shooter's Manifesto, although the shooter doesn't think much of him because he's he's Jewish. So Walter Bloch was the, the Fraser Institute was founded in the final years of the, the Dave Barrett uh, NDP government basically to swing British Columbia to the right. And it was the forestry industry played a role in financing it, but also a lot of money in Ontario. Um, And it was uh, set up with the help of chief advisors from the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, which governed this province for pretty most of the post-war history from 43 up until 86. And it had the ear of the social credit government in British Columbia when it came to power after the defeat. Of the NDP. And, and Walter Block, as its chief economist, took credit and was accused of writing entire social credit budgets, which included deep cuts to anti poverty programs and then to rent control, cuts to the minimum wage, the abolition of non discrimination policies, and whatever progressive initiatives the, the NDP, the limited progressive initiatives that the NDP had, had introduced, uh, were all gutted.
0: Was that quote, the right to discriminate is a desirable feature of free societies, was that connected to the scrapping of the um, charter of rights in British Columbia?
2: Yes, it was. Yes. And then later he wrote a a subsequent book about how uh, if you judge people on the basis of merit, you would still end up with uh, a lower ranking of, of black people in both the United States and British Columbia. And was even later, and this was in a subsequent interview, far more explicit about the fact that he thought black people were just inferior and less intelligent and that's why they're poorer. He was highly influential on, on the right. This was the mainstreaming of, in a lot of cases, the most extreme advocate of these ideas. And then he was also a big fan of Charles Murray, who was also a big fan of Rushton. And that's not too convoluted.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. it is as these things always are. It It is convoluted, it's this kind of constellation of, of various people who are, for the most part, quite tightly connected to one another, and, and in some cases, less so.
2: It's a bit like the nesting dolls, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you look at the Canadian political landscape, I mean, do you see, Are you having, having immersed yourself in this stuff, do you see policies in which you think somebody having read Charles Murray, I mean, Jason Kenney having read Charles Murray, do you see where that influence might play out in the kinds of policies politicians might bring to bear?
2: Yeah, I I think that's that's a really good question. And we know that the Fraser Institute took credit for a lot of the workfare policies introduced in in the 90s. And indeed, when the Harris Progressive Conservatives were campaigning against the extension of of income support benefits under the Ray NDP government, they cited a guy called Christopher Sarlo, who was a a social assistance review board member in, in Ontario who then wrote a report for the Fraser Institute calling for cuts and workfare changes, citing Charles Murray to argue for it. So at very least, I don't know which politicians are reading Murray, but among the intellectuals and the ideologues of the right, Murray is highly influential. And there's a number of other cases in the article, the Frontier Center is another, another case where you find actually quite extensive Murray citations and, and insistence, uh, uh, friendliness to race and IQ theories to justify austerity. And I really think the common thread here is that the right, whether it's the extreme right or the more moderate right, they believe that people are unequal, and that's how it should be. And whether they believe that's an unfortunate reality or something that should be sanctified or defended, that is the common threat. They just fundamentally believe people are, are not equal and, and accept that, and that there is no point in trying to build a more equal society. And they will look for any justification to find that, even if it means, you know, some cases measuring how far people ejaculate.
0: And then they find, yeah, exactly. They find the the pseudoscience to maintain this belief. Mm
2: -hmm. And I I also, the other thing I pointed out in the article is is recently this has taken the turn towards education policy. And I think really this is a product, unfortunately, of some of their success, that income support programs today are threadbare. They are below survival rate. And it has killed people, a lot of the changes that were introduced in the 90s. And poverty does still kill people as a result of these continuing austerity measures which were pushed with these justifications. But now they're, they're also using these arguments to defend changes in the education system in defense of streaming and defense of standardized tests and um, opposition to extending post-secondary education because they believe that racialized kids just aren't worth investing in through, through social programs, that they are uh, bound to be inferiors. And that I find particularly disgusting. And you see versions of this argument underlying a lot of the talk of of welfare dependency today. They view, it's not just that people are lazy because they're on welfare, it's also that they're generating future dependence that the right takes real issue with. And often you find race science is not far from that argument.
0: That was Press Progress writer, Mitch Thompson. You'll find his recent Jacobin Magazine piece, Canada's Right-Wing Think Tank's Love Race Science, linked in our show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. I'm Mark Apollonio. The lead producer of Darts and Letters is Jay Coburn. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudon. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop. Your usual host and the show's editor is Gordon Caddick. To send us feedback, email the show, darts at citedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. We're also supported by our patrons, patreon.com slash dartsandletters to become one of them. Thanks for listening.